Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part conversation with psychologist, professor, and author Dr. Alan Sroof about how we become the persons and people we are. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock for what I know is going to be an unforgettable interview today. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest. And I know his name is gonna be familiar to many of you. Today, I will be interviewing Dr. Alan Sroof. He is a former professor at the Institute of Child Development at the University of Minnesota. He received his PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Sroof has been the Associate Editor of Developmental Psychology and Developmental Development and Psychopathology Journals, an internationally recognized expert on attachment relationships, emotional development, and developmental psychopathology. He has published numerous articles and books on these topics which include the development of a person, a two-time award winner, and recently released, which we're gonna talk to him about today at length in our interview, a book called A Compelling Idea. His other awards include Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award for the Society for Research in Child Development, the Bowlby Ainsworth Award for Contributions to Attachment Research, the Mentor Award, and the G. Stanley Hall Award for Distinguished Scientific Contribution to Developmental Psychology from Division 7 of the American Psychology Association. I could go on and on about additional awards this amazing man has won, but suffice it to say that he is one of the most prolific, respected researchers in the field of attachment and has an incredible longitudinal study that he will be referencing today. So stay tuned and Dr. Sroof will be coming right up. So it's so wonderful to continue this conversation with you, Dr. Sroof, thank you. Happy to be back. Yes, so, you know, we talked a bit in our last episode just about the book, about overall about the study um, and how, how At the end of our conversation last week, we were talking about the influence of social support on attachment. And that brings up, well, on lots of things probably, but one of the things I was thinking about with that aspect of your study is I'm very interested in the adult attachment interview and even have some research going on with that and looking at the intergenerational transmission of attachment. So I was trying to clarify in my mind, and I know you'll be able to explain this, you know, if one's attachment classification is lasting in terms of 
uh, you know, what, what, what Bowlby said. It, it can change, but something has to happen to change it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is kind of what your study show too. <clears throat> so say we have a, a parent that is, uh, they have an AI, they're strongly in the dismissing classification. Why would social support make a difference then mm-hmm. in the baby's classification? Now I had one idea. I had a, a hypothesis in my mind, a very primitive one compared to the kind I'm sure you formulate. But I, I was thinking, well, under stress, we do more of mm-hmm. whatever we do that's not so great. Yes, so, mm-hmm. so Anyway, I don't know if I'm on the right track with that. Please explain this to me and our listeners. Sure. Um, well, f- first of all, even your adult attachment interview can also change your yes. adult attachment status. Yes. And um, there's a very interesting... Thank goodness for, for very people interesting, who are uh, therapists. <laughs> there's a very interesting case in the book of uh, a young man who's status evolved and for reasons that we can talk about but uh sure you know in my mind what uh dismissing uh, attachment status means if that's your if that's your way of processing and dealing with attachment feelings what that means is when you are threatened I mean, the, re- the, reason, the reason I would expect dismissing attachment, uh, dismissing AAI to predict an avoidant attachment in the baby is that when the baby seeks to have a tender need met, it goes to, he wants to be picked up, he wants to be held. Yes. And you turn him away. That's the main ingredient in creating an avoidant attachment. Why would you turn him away at precisely those times? The reason is to acknowledge his need, to see it, to recognize it, would be to recognize your own unmet needs. You cannot see and experience deeply his longing for contact without having come to grips with the contact you didn't have and the longing that you have for contact. But the social support that surrounds you would help you not have your needs be so pressing, would help you in the sense that you're you're getting your emotional needs now met. The fact that you didn't get them before The problem, of course, is it's very difficult for someone who's afraid of attachment feelings to form a partnership with someone who's comfortable with attachment feelings. We even found that in our uh, studies of children, the kids who had avoidant attachment histories tended to form friendships when they did at all, only with other children with avoidant attachment histories. Mm-hmm. Yes. But if it does happen that you form a partnership with someone who is responsive, 
So let me t- let me say something about this case. Yes. Because he's a perfect example of what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, I can't remember the name I call him in this book because I call him different names. But uh, perhaps I called him Mike. Um, this was a child, and this is in- interesting to note because the way I think AAI change actually works. Mike actually had a secure his uh, attachment as an infant. And in fact, all the early years were very positive, all the way into elementary school. Then some really difficult things happened. There was an acrimonious divorce. In and of itself, divorce wouldn't necessarily knock a child off who had such a strong beginning. But this was a messy one. Yes. In, involving uh, not only separation from his dad, but from his siblings. And, and uh, still, he was struggling along, but we could see some impact of this. But he still had a pretty bright light. But um, his mom became quite reliant on him. Hmm. And we saw that as a little risky. That happens at times. (laughs) Um, There was a little, you know, boundary issue emerging. And he began pushing away from her, which we thought was good. But then she died suddenly, unpredictably. Oh, yeah, I remember. Very bad. Now, look at this pileup of adversity. So as an adolescent, he was troubled. He had conduct problems. He was depressed. So his secure attachment didn't mean life happy ever after. And so now he's got this entire history. So at age 19, his AAI was quite dismissing, including him saying that the death of his mother hardly bothered him at all. It's hmm, classic. Yeah, which was, you know, clearly probably not true. <laughs> we saw it bother him. Yes. Um, I guess what I meant was classic response to the question of someone in the adult attachment interview. Yes, exactly. So now, um, seven years later, age 26, we give another adult attachment interview. And in the meantime, he'd married a woman who was very supportive and responsive and loving. And... His AI was a a bit ambiguous at that age, but clear movement in the autonomous direction, and especially was able to talk about the loss of his mother. Yes. And he was one of the best fathers I ever saw, because we saw all these parents who had kids, we brought in and saw them with their kids in the next generation. Yes. So now if you just had his 19-year-old AI and nothing else, Yes. You'd be astounded that he could be a good father. Mm-hmm. And you, I, there, there's, you could do this. There are many cases like this, and there's group data that could be called upon that show that this kind of change, this is the nature of change. Um, a lot of emphasis these days in developmental psychology about turning points and new opportunities. And by this, they mean you get a job, you get married, you know, you join the military, you get out of the military, you you know, you do something, you get an education. And that's an opportunity to grow. But what we found in our study was like Mike, those who formed a partnership 
we're more likely to use that as a springboard toward change if they had a secure attachment history in the first place before all of the problems. Okay. This is this was one new take we had on what is called earned security. Like resiliency, we don't think earned security is something you just did all by yourself. You gutted it out and earned your security. We think you got help getting there. Yes. That help could have happened when you were little and then you get problems like Mike. Or you could have had an anxious attachment when you were little and then your parents got it together and were more supportive. We saw lots of that. Mm-hmm. As, as parents' life stabilized, you know, they left the abusive man. They, they got a good social support system. They finished. They got their GED. They got a stable life set. Yeah, those kids can well have a, uh, an autonomous AAI. And again, it's because, of course they can, but it isn't like, it isn't magic, it's development. I mean, development is magical, but it's not, it doesn't just happen. It's, there's coherence to it. Yes. And that's, that's what we found about resilience. Yes, that's the next topic I wanted to ask you about. So I'm so glad you're going to speak to this. Well, you know, resilience has a long history of research, and it started out with the concept called invulnerability. Before the term resilience was invented, the term invulnerability was there. And the idea was that some kids doesn't matter what happens to them, they come out all right. And even today, you hear about dandelion children. That means they can grow in any environment. I don't believe it for a minute. And I think it is not based on studies that started when our study started. What you find is that, okay, there are two, there are two basic definitions of resilience. One is doing well in the face of adversity. Mm-hmm. And the other is recovering from a period of problems. Those are the two definitions. So we studied aspects of both of those. So for example, in middle childhood, generally speaking, high life stress predicts behavior problems. But sometimes there are kids, you can define two groups of kids. Those, they both have high life stress but one group doesn't have behavior problems and one group does. So you could say the group without behavior problems is resilient. And I would say to you, well, how do you know they're resilient? You say, well, because they have high life stress and they don't have behavior behavior problems. Okay, we knew that, that's descriptive. Why don't they have the behavior problems? And one thing we found, if you had a secure attachment history and high life stress in middle childhood, you're much less likely to have behavior problems. So yes, they're able to cope with the adversity because they have the platform that enables them to. And we found that age by age, you can take any age you want and study the supports and then look at a later adversity and then look at the problems. So the other way, um, take a group of four to five-year-olds who are showing behavioral problems. 
And in this first study, we had three assessments every six months from age three and a half to four and a half. And these children that we're talking about were consistently troubled. Now, in one sense, they're just one group of kids, kids with trouble. Mm -hmm. And if you followed them up, you'd find some got better and you'd say they were resilient. Yes. And I'd ask you, how do you know they're resilient? You say, well, because they got better. But no, why did they get better? Again, if they had a secure attachment history in infancy and they had these consistent behavior problems, which some secure kids will because of stuff that happened, that's also predictable, they'll get better, more likely. So there are two groups of children, not one. If the early history is erased, there's only one group of kids, but it isn't erased. It's still there as a platform. And you can do this again. Take any two age periods you want. If you take, say, uh, kids in third grade have behavior problems, in early adolescence, they don't. What accounts for that? Secure attachment history and reduced life stress in the years between eight and adolescence. When you take into account those two things, you account for almost all the cases of resiliency. And I, I'm, not, I'm not dismissing the term. I love the term resiliency. I just want it understood that resilience is a developmental outcome, just like vulnerability is, just like behavior problems are, mm -hmm. uh, just like coping capacity is. Everything is a developmental outcome. There's no and, such thing as invulnerability. Absolutely not. Which was that term you used earlier. Yes, because, for example, uh, Arnie Samaroff in the uh, Rochester risk study, they had <clears throat> nine risk factors they looked at. And if you had eight or nine of those risk factors, none of the kids did okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you can... And then you have to also, I'm sorry, you have to, you got risk factors, but then you also have assets and supportive factors. You have to, yes. it's, a, it's a ratio. Yes. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. Well, one of the things I was thinking about, it's not exactly the same, but this tendency to look at what you see on the outside as explaining things. And I was thinking back to your starting to use the strange situation and trying to remember the name of the student who said, I'll teach you the strange situation <laughs> protocol if you'll teach me how to do all these measures of heart rate and, and all of these things with the babies. And um, you'll, you'll, you'll explain that. But um, the that babies, well, I'll, I'll bring up the avoidant again, um, that look like I don't care about the caregiver, you mm -hmm. found physiologically mm -hmm. that was not true. They didn't look like they didn't care on the outside, but the inside told something different. Of course. Yeah, they're, they're infants. All infants are attached if someone raises them. You have no, you have no choice about that. Um, the, the term unattached child is a pretty bad one, except as applied to these institution-reared children who never had any consistent care. Because children will be attached even if they're maltreated. And that, that used to seem to be a paradox of people. In fact, my behaviorist friends found that very paradoxical. Because 
uh, and in fact, they, they use it as a critique of attachment theory because they'd say, look, this theory is all wrong because you're saying these kids are attached when they were treated badly, but of course they're attached. And they're just as attached as kids who are secure, called secure attached. Because security doesn't mean uh, more or less attached. It's a kind of qualitative measure of confidence and comfort in your attachment. That's an important distinction that you just made. It's terribly important. Misunderstood. Because I'm often asked by parents, well, what about kids who are too attached? No, you're talking about kids who are anxiously attached in a particular way. You mean the child's clinging all the time and never wants to explore? That's, That's not being too attached. That's being anxious about the attachment. Yes. They're no more or less attached than the child who can explore and only if they're stressed or threatened come for reassurance and then go back to explore. That's how we define security, the balance. Yes. And the avoidant kids are attached also. And yes, the heart rate study that showed that when their parents left and came back, even though they did not approach them, their heart rate stayed elevated, showing that they were stressed and upset but they were withholding their attachment feelings is a very important example of quite early primitive defensiveness. Yes, babies can withhold their feelings in some ways. Yes. And and it's not a good thing to have that happen. We don't want that to happen. We want it to happen as little as possible. And that will happen as little as possible if we help parents be responsive to babies. At that stage in your career, did that did those readings shock you or were you this is exactly what I thought? Well, we we expected their heart rate to be elevated. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was very clear from the theory. Yes. And the other thing, you know, we found that those kids with avoidant attachments later were more dependent on preschool teachers than the secure kids. Yes. And that's, that's like a death blow to behaviorist predictions. It's just the opposite. Are they precociously independent? That's what, that's what was said. I remember when, when uh, we first were doing these studies, I was giving talks around various places and I'd show the video of the of an attach an avoidant attachment case. And the psychologist in the audience would say, there's no problem there. That child's just precociously independent. And you and you say, but no, they can't be. They're babies. And Bowlby said they will later be more dependent. Anxious attachment, even those precociously pushed towards independence early, will later be more dependent. So we we explicitly look for that. We went yeah. out of our way. We we uh, you might know this from the book. We when they were in our preschool, we observed every circle time, which happens a lot in preschool. You know, yes. a circle, a morning circle, a later story time circle, and we measured where each cat kid sat, and. The avoidant kids were more often next to a teacher or on a teacher's lap by far than the kids with secure histories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that, that need didn't the need for contact didn't go away. Yes. Yet at yes. that end. Yes. 
frankly, I don't think it ever goes away, but it can get buried more and more deeply, obviously. Right. It certainly flies in the face of this idea. I I don't want to meet my child's needs too often and make them too dependent. You know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's the opposite. Yeah. Generally, I would encourage parents not to worry about that. You can't meet all their needs. Right. Nor, nor do you need to. Yes. Winnicott was right about that. You do not need to be perfect. Yes. You need to be good enough. Yeah. And er- Eric Erickson said famously, children don't become neurotic due to frustration, but due to the absence of meaning in the frustration. Mm. So parents who are coherent, yeah, sometime the stove is boiling over, the baby's crying, you go and deal with the stove. Then you go to the crying baby. Or the baby's crying, but the toddler just fell. You know, you're not going to meet right. all their needs. You don't right. need to meet all their needs. Right. You need to be relatively consistent and responsive, and you need to behave in terms of their needs. Yes. Don't pick them up when you feel like having a hug. Right. Pick them up when they need the hug. Yes. And so forth. Yes. You know, I feel like that that uh, delineation is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, the new book, The Power of Discord, um, Vitronic and Gold, but kind of talking about the there has to be some discord, you know, of course. Of course. Sure. So, and yeah. it's, it's, very, it's very important. And in fact, when kids are two or three, they'll start deliberately making discord happen. Mm-hmm. And that's important, too, because they need to learn not only will you do the repair, but they can take action to have the repair happen. Yes, and that, I realize we're, we're running out of time here, but this whole idea, we have to just talk about it at least for a second because it's so fascinating that uh, children bring forth behaviors in adults based on their history. And you, you explain this a lot in looking at how preschool teachers respond to, to children in certain ways. Could you share just a little about that? Sure. Uh, You know, children become the the influence of the child also develops. And age by age, the child becomes a stronger force in their own development. And even by preschool, they come in there with different expectations and views of the world. They get disappointed. They go off by themselves or they go to a teacher, depending on what their history was. They respond to other kids, they're empathic or not, depending on their history. And teachers bring their own histories in there. And so if a child, and especially uh, it's, it's hard for teachers when kids are deliberately hurtful of another kid. And it's easy for teachers to want to discipline such a child. And I agree, they need to be contained And they they need to learn to not do that behavior. Yes. But on the other hand, what we tend to want to do is isolate them. And that's part of because of our feelings. We want to get distant from them. Yes. But isolating that kind of child actually just confirms the model of the world they brought to you in the first place. So somehow you need to discipline that child without them experiencing a rejection and another isolation. In my ideal world, there's a teacher's aide who's trained as a developmentalist 
who goes with that child to the other room. It's not for fun, but we're together. Go to the other room and say, we're going to be here until you're ready to be with the other children. So we're, we're just going to be in here for a while. So he doesn't experience rejection. Might be confusing to him. Wait, I just did this thing. And how come you aren't, you know, whacking me one or making me uh, stand and face the wall for a half an hour? But the kids you make stand and face the wall for a half an hour are uh, in our study, we found those are kids with histories of avoidant attachment, meaning a history of emotional neglect or rejection. Yeah. And so you don't want to do that with them. Yes. Yeah. And similarly, a child that makes you feel all warm and cuddly that you want to be picking up all the time. That's a child who's learned that his job is to take care of parents' feelings. And you yeah. don't want to support that either. You don't want to reject that child either, but you want to encourage that child to get involved with the other children. That's what that child needs. So, and would we think about that more as a resistant, ambivalent classification? The second one, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, wow. This book is, there's so much in this book. Um, I feel like I could talk to you about it for a couple of days. Um, it's just been so wonderful. How, you know, uh, it, it, it maybe is obvious, but um, what do you think is the compelling idea? You know, how, well, did, you, how did you settle on this? The, com the compelling idea is the organization of our own self, of our personality, the organization of who we are, came from the organization of the caregiving system that we were reared in. Yes. Before there's a self, there is an organization, but that organization isn't in the baby. Historically, it was in the caregiver, but the caregiver creates an organization, fits the baby into it, responds to the particular baby to adjust that organization and that organization becomes you. So we are, we are our relationship history. Mm, I love that. And so where, you know, I found your book, I bought your book from Safer Society Press because they were charging double the price on Amazon. Have you noticed? Do you know what that's about? No, I have no idea. I pay no attention. <laughs> of course you do. I, I mean, it may, it may be, it may be that uh, the hardback costs twice as much. Yes, yes, that. yes. That might that, be. You it. know, that's because publishers do that. Because, yes. You know, the hardback is for uh, distribution and. Yes, yes. Well, regardless, everybody needs to find this book somewhere, whether you look on Amazon, whether you go to Safer Society Press, this book, A Compelling Idea, it is a book I just couldn't put down. It was just compelling, a great title. Um, and you said what some of your goals were for the book at the beginning of the podcast. And I would say you met and exceeded them and it's absolutely brilliant. Oh my gosh, thank you. Yeah. And yes, go to Safer Society Press. They they want you to buy it from them. Yes. They, all of their all of their profits go to uh, child abuse prevention and intervention. Oh, fantastic! They're connected with a foundation. They're a nonprofit. Oh, that's fantastic! Thank you for that that additional tip, and thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Take care. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.